Hello, and welcome to Faith Facts with Father Howard. I'm Lindsay, here with Father Howard, and on today's episode, we are discussing statues and icons. So let's get started. Hey, Lindsay, again, always good to be with you and have an opportunity to talk about some of these issues that that pertain particularly in many ways to our church, but not just to ours, but to a lot of churches. But oftentimes when it comes to statues and icons and those kinds of things, some of those what we would call sacramentals, is that um, we're accused of worshiping idols. We're accused of, you know, praying to other gods other than God. We're accused of, you know, praying to statues and Mary and all sorts of other things. And and when you think about it, one, what we do makes all the sense in the world. Of course, I would say that because I'm a priest. Um, But two, it comes out of the the sense that we are an incarnational church. We are. What does that mean? Incarnational means that Jesus became human. The divine became human. Uh, we are not disembodied spirits with, you know, trying to catch each other or whatever someplace. We're not these just somehow, you know, f- idyllic floaters out there that that um, <clears throat> that Sounds connect. Sounds like a fun game. Yeah, that connect us to God. We recognize that the divine reveals the divine self through human beings of flesh and blood. That means we have sight, sound, you know, smell, all of the senses are part of that. And it's through these senses, through who we are as human beings. Uh, My experience as a male is different than your experience as, as a female, but we are both human beings. And through all of the senses and that which makes us who we are, we come to know and experience nothing less than the divine. And that means, you know, again, we talk about sacramentals, and we did talk about those a little bit a while back, that, you know, it's it's, uh, pictures or icons or statues or rosaries or, you know, medals or all sorts of things like that, that we are reminded of. It can help us to bring a focus to. It can help us to clear our, our thoughts, our minds, our hearts of, of that stuff which distracts. And, and through all of that, we grow in prayer, reflection, and we would say we grow closer to God. Now, uh, having said all of that, uh, we also recognize, you know, that the Bible says, you know, don't make any images. Okay, uh, but that was a different time and Where place. Where does it say that? Uh, it says that. Says that. Uh, says that. It says that in Genesis that we are not to have idols. We are not to have false gods. It says that also in Exodus with the tablets. Uh, you know, the as we would refer to as the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thou shalt not have bare false. Uh, witness or images. So, oh, images. Okay. So, what you'll find in lots of different places in 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 Jewish traditions and Islam, Muslim traditions, is that you do not have images of of, of peoples and such. Animals, fine, but not of humans. 
that they will use lots of different types of things, but they will not have images. And it, it comes out of the, the commandments. And this idea that, and, and part of this also is getting away from the fact that you have to remember that these people were, before they, you know, since became the chosen people, united, you know, as, as the people of God, is that they had worshipped all sorts of gods. Uh, there were all sorts of pagan rituals that were being practiced, is that even in the beginning of, of their venture through the desert and all of that, you know, God might have been, you know, the main God, uh, you know, the mm -hmm. big God, but they had all sorts of little gods that, that were still being prayed to and worshipped and had images, uh, false images of these little gods. And so it was getting away from that, saying, we worship one God, and there is no way that we can carve an image of him because that becomes in a false image. Um, and so you have the incidences where they have the golden calf and all sorts of things like that. Mm -hmm. And that was strictly forbidden. Though, if you're not mm -hmm. supposed to necessarily take it literally, you could say it's a, you know, that's okay to have images, right? I mean, I'm not well, quite... Well, because, you know, you say we don't, we're not literalists for the Bible. That, that's correct. So that when correct. you're saying don't do images, don't do this or that, I mean, but the if we take one thing not literally, then we can't take others. True. Right? But if the concept is, is that we are not to have images, eventually it's a bigger, it's a bigger concept than just a particular, you know, little thing here or there. Okay. It's a bigger concept of, you know, how we worship uh, why we worship, to whom we worship, and how we are going to represent that. So you're right. You know, um, it's it's being able to look at the different scriptures and and ask ourselves the question, what are they trying to teach us? And part of that, when you look at the issues, for example, with the uh, the golden calf, but it's that doesn't stop there. When you look at some of the issues being preached against by uh, by Jeremiah, by the Isaiah, by, you know, the, the prophets and by <clears throat> judges and such, is that there was a whole lot of idol worship going on. And so the, the way you get rid of that is you, you kind of wipe it all out. So it's, it's being able to recognize, though, then that, you know, how we depict God or how we talk about God even with the fact that the name was not to be pronounced except for once a year by the high priest, is that this was, you look at this and saying how easy it must have been for the people of that day and age to fall into a different idol worship. Sure. And, and, and so what they do is you take, you know, the extreme step of saying there will be no idols at all under any circumstances, and, and carrying that in, um, you know, through the, the world in which you live. Now, after, you might say, after the, the nativity, you know, this idea that there is, you might say, the human, you know, image of God, that's Jesus, is that you begin to think about it in different ways. Again, we become a very incarnational, that is, flesh and blood. And so, so the representation then uh, of, 
of the images that we use, in the beginning, it wasn't a human face or whatever. It was, you know, the lamb, a rooster, a fish. All of these were the images that spoke of, of Christ. Mm -hmm. and, and so the transitional processes that took place in order to, that moved from, you know, not having anything to having kind of a in-between time to where something was much different there, where, you know, there were different representations. And oftentimes through the great artists, you know, in the Middle Ages and such, um, what, where they represented God, taken from the Old Testament, you know, God is king, God is warrior, God is, you know, whatever they needed God to be at that point in time. And so it's, it's, it's uh, using that whole different approach. So when we take, you know, statues in our own day and age, or stained glass windows, or icons, these types of things, these are things that not, do not, or hopefully do not become, you know, somehow object, objects of worship. What they become are those things that help us to focus. So even when we talk about, you know, uh, a, a particular saint, prayer is ultimately always about God. Always. And it is through Jesus to God. When we pray then, we recognize, and again, part of this is the belief of that we are all connected. Those who have gone before us, when we call the, upon the communion of saints, that, that there is a connectedness and an influence, you might say, uh, that, 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 is, that takes place when we, when we focus our prayer and such. That we believe that, you know, in the communion of saints, one of the concepts is, is that we are there in front of the throne, you know, the throne of God, whatever that says to a person, that we are there, you know, offering worship and praise, and that this is what it means to be fulfilled in, in ultimately in, in the afterlife. An interesting concept. <laughs> um, you know, there were those who would say, well, that doesn't really thrill me to death, um, to just be, you know, constant praise. But anytime, anytime we use any image, it is always inadequate. It, is, it, it never captures something entirely. So when we talk about, you know, praying to the saints or whatever, it's, it's recognized that when we do so, is that that prayer, in a sense, for, it helps us to focus whether it's St. Anthony, I need to find something. Whether it be Mary, when we, we focus on motherhood or what that even means. When we focus on a particular martyr and maybe the example of their life by what they did and sometimes the difficult things that they had to go through. Or it focuses on a saint that served the poor, that served the enslaved, that served the lepers in the leper colonies is that these folks help us to focus our prayer, saying, you know, always, ultimately to God, give me the strength of, of, of St. Damien. Give me the strength or the patience of Mary. Give me the strength or the patience of, because this is an example that I, as a human being, can latch onto. This is an example that, that helps me to focus of what needs to take place in my own life by their example 
that somehow will help me to grow in an understanding and to grow in a sense of what God may be asking of me. It's always about God. It's never not about God. It's that we recognize, though, that the human experience, you know, flesh and blood, through the grace of God, mm-hmm. is able to teach us tremendous things about what we may need to be doing, what we may need to be about, or how we may need to change our lives in order that we come, in order that we come to some of that, that understanding, that come to some of that point or place, you know, of, of, of that they did, you know, as, as, a, as a prime example, what it means to be faithful. Um, what it means to, you know, uh, when you think about, for example, when we think of St. Peter, that though he did some terrible things, you know, uh, being a coward, being, you know, God, Jesus saying to him, get behind me, Satan, that even though he can, you know, with his mistakes, that he was able, you might say, to reach that point in his own faith life of being, as legend has it, <laughs> being um, crucified upside down because he felt he was not worthy to be crucified as the Lord was. And so the request was that he be crucified upside down. That was Peter? That was Peter. What about Judas? Uh, Judas, there are lots of legends about Judas. It is believed that Judas, Judas eventually took his life out of oh. the terrible grief of the betrayal that he had he had done. Now, again, there are all sorts of legends about that. There's even a gospel of Judas out there that supposedly was written by Judas. Uh, it, it's apocryphal. It's, it's, there I go with that word again. It's apocryphal and it, it's, this is literature that oftentimes came out of the, the early uh, Middle Ages because it was rooted in stories and, and, and non-historical books that were out there that were found all over the place in order to somehow tell the story. Mm-hmm. So it is legend has it <clears throat> that Judas took his own life out of sorrow, out of grief. Okay. So in my he, brain, upside yeah. down. <laughs> yeah. Did he? Did he? You know, and and part of the story, legend is that he hung himself from one of the the trees. That he simply he hung himself. Gotcha. Did he? Who knows? You know, that's between him and God. Um, you know, there's all sorts of theories, even when it comes to um, when it comes to Judas. That did he? You know, when when he died, did he? show great remorse again. I don't think Jesus would have chosen him to be a disciple because he was going to screw him over or he was going to betray him. I just don't believe that for a moment. One, I think Jesus was a whole lot smarter than that. You know, that there was, I suspect in Judas, great potential that Jesus saw, as he saw in all of his disciples. I think great potential is that why did Judas do what he did? Again, you know, when you, when you read the scriptures, we recognize that each of the writers has a bias. Each of the writers has, you know, their take on something. Uh, Judas obviously would not have been seen as, you know, uh, persona uh, grata, you know, he would have been certainly persona non grata. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're going to paint a picture that's not going to be exactly positive of him. What he went through or why 
We don't know. We just don't know. Could he have been basically because he was a crook? Might have been. Again, I I just think about, you know, Jesus being a rather smart man and uh, in lots of ways that he would have seen the potential and the hope always being there. Um, I've never seen a statue of Judas. (laughs) <laughs> no, no, of course, you never would, you know. Uh, here again, you know, the, Judas is oftentimes portrayed as this, you know, scraggly character that has, you know, a, a, a kind of drooling and humped over and, and scraggly beard and evil looking eyes and always in dark colors. And, and, and the others are perfectly groomed and the beards are perfect and those kinds of things. Um, when, you, when you look at that thing, that's a particular take. It's a particular approach. And those approaches do have an effect on how we perceive things. Mm-hmm. And so when you think of the, you know, what did Judas look like? Who really knows? Just as we don't know exactly what any of the disciples would have looked like. But or Jesus for that matter. Exactly. They would have been of that Middle Eastern, you know, descent. They would have been most likely dark-skinned. They would have, they would have looked like the Arabs of today and, and many of the Palestinians and people of today. However, you know, how we depict him and such, that has truly influenced in so many ways what we think of Judas today. And when you hear people yeah. talk about Judas, it's usually in negative terms. When we don't know that. True. We really don't know that. But again, that goes back to the fact we are a incarnational people. Sight, sound, smell, taste, uh, touch, all of that makes a difference. And, and how we perceive things and how things are drawn or whatever influences the perceptions that we have. And it helps us then to create a particular spirituality, theology, uh, or whatever it might be, it helps us to, you know, to to experience something. Now, we there was a um, in a retreat house that uh, in in the area uh, years ago they had a statue that was really born out of the you might say the uh, Spanish Spain uh, spirituality, and there was a whole time when your depictions of Jesus. And, and such, and martyrs and all of that, the gorier, the better. And so we, when we went to re, on a retreat to this particular place, it was a statue that was kept in a closet at the <laughs> time that we were there, but it was referred to as the Hamburger Jesus. And the reason was, it was one of the goriest, god-awful depictions of the scourging that, that I've ever seen oh. in, in, in a statue form. And it was a sta- statue? It was a statue. And so there was, you know, blood and muscle and big chunks of flesh torn off the body and, you know, oh. the face and everything. One of the most god-awful. But it grew out of a spirituality that said the greater you could depict the suffering of Jesus, the better it was. And so your saints and the spirituality of that time, the more terrible things that you could do to your body, it was perceived as being closer to Jesus. So what they would do to themselves as far as self-mutilation, um, uh, fasting for, for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks at a time, uh, beatings that they would go through, the terrible things that they would do to their own bodies and flesh, 
the terrible things that they would allow themselves to, because this was being seen as being close to Jesus. I mean, isn't that why Jesus went through everything so we didn't have to? Well, that's what I would think. <laughs> However, so weird. it was the spirituality at the time. Now, some of this got really sick. And at times, you would hear it in some of the stories of the saints that they would do god-awful things. You don't see that in many because that's not the point anymore. The point at the time was the gross, more gross it could be, or if it would really gross you out, the better it was. And this was like... 1800s, 1700s, oh, Middle was, Ages? Well, I would say the spirituality was really rooted in the Middle Ages. However, because now, when you think about the Middle Ages and then the Dark Ages, kind of in the middle of that, mm -hmm. is that obviously these were not good times. <laughs> and, you know, there was the, the idea that, that God was punishing. And mm -hmm. so these saints at that point in time, this, this was very popular sure. you know, at this time. And then even into the, uh, into the 800s, 1800s, I should say, 1800s, is that there are a goodly number of saints that would do all sorts of terrible things to their bodies. Uh, and this was, this was supposed to be ideal because you were suffering, you were offering it up for the poor souls in purgatory, and you were offering it up that you could identify and you could experience what Jesus experienced on the cross. The closer you could come to that, the holier you, holier you were considered to be. Again, very incarnational. Now, you know, and sometimes it really fed into the sickness, I think, of, of, of sometimes saints. As, as sometimes people will say, insanity and sainthood aren't that far apart sometimes, aren't that far apart. You know, and I don't mean to give the impression that all these saints are crazy. It's not what I'm saying. It is that it sometimes could feed into some very unhealthy, obviously, things. Probably lots of mental health issues that... Would not surprise at me. At that time... Yeah way were not diagnosed. Would not surprise me. Though I suppose the art, though, that came out of that was a conversation piece. Oftentimes, like, yes. You still remember that statue and that you saw. Yeah. And, you know, you, you do. And one of the things that we had to, when I was on my 30-day retreat, one of the things that we had to do is that we had to pick an evening after a certain length, month of time there. And it was, they had a, a picture of the crucified Christ. It wasn't, you know, overly gory, but certainly it was a depiction of a Christ that was suffering terribly. And it was the recognition that though Howard Hazy or whoever could do incredible good, but Howard Hazy was also capable of incredible evil. And, and you had to recognize the fact that not only are you capable of tremendous good, you're also capable of tremendous evil. And you have committed evil in one's life. And that evil has consequences. It has consequences in the people around you. It has consequences spiritually in you as a human person. But it was, it was being able to accept that reality. That unless you were able to accept that reality, the temptation or the possibility was you were going to become arrogant or prideful and you were going to forget that somehow, you know, I can do no evil. Why? Because I am pretty doggone good. And saying, eh, not always. Not always. Not because you went out and hurt somebody. Not because you went out and shot somebody. But because of your selfishness, others may not eat. Because of your selfishness or wanting to look good. We may have kids, 
you know, in enslavement and making clothes. Taking all those stolen stipend fees when you don't need yeah. to. You know, all of them. Um, so what makes an icon an icon? Well, an icon is a particular kind of artwork in that an icon is usually a depiction on a, a piece of wood and it is uh, of, a, of a saint or and it's I, the icons, the genuine icons are usually out of the Eastern rites, the mm -hmm. Eastern really Catholic traditions or Orthodox traditions. It's a particular style of art that you, to make a genuine icon, you have to be trained for years and years and years, and there are masters of this. <clears throat> and they will say that an icon, a genuine icon, oftentimes are referred to as uh, windows into the kingdom of heaven. That when you look into the eyes of an icon, or in if when you when you see an icon that is depicted, what you are looking into is literally into the heavenly realm. That it is to move you spiritually and. And, you know, when you see the ones, in a sense, made by the masters, and then you see the ones that are sold in kind of sometimes the general stores, mm -hmm. no, there's, there's no comparison. It's like, I would say, it's, it's like seeing someone who can skate or dance. I mean, really skate or dance. And someone who likes skating and dancing. They're both good. Mm-hmm. But these are really good. <laughs> and in fact, the movement is almost spiritual. When you see a couple that that is, has such that rhythm together, mm -hmm. their bodies, minds, and souls in many ways, when you see that, or you see skaters, you know, figure skating and such, it can be literally a spiritual experience. You look in, in, in a genuine icon that are usually on wood. They're usually mm -hmm. on, on a, a surface of wood. And the paints that they use or make or create to do these is that these are born out of a person's prayer and out of a person's spirituality, as opposed to someone who just wants to slap a picture on the piece of wood of St. Peter. As I'm staring at Solanus Casey over there. Oh, yes. Yes. Pretty it's, sure his eyes follow you, but yeah. it's cool. Well, and, and, and that's, you know, again... The, the good ones, the, the, the experience you get. And, and be, I've been different places where, you know, some of these icons have existed for hundreds, hundreds of years, is that you see why they have been depicted in artwork and stuff like sure. that. Sure. It's interesting how uh, one of our former archbishops um, gave, when he called a synod, he gave each of the parishes a depiction of, of, uh, of of the synod. No, this is was in the eighties. Okay. Yeah, in the eighties. Not our most recent synod. No, 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 no. This goes back in the eighties. Is that? And it's like when you think about that, saying, "Yeah, that makes sense." I mean, it, it depicted a, a synod of what that should be and what that, and he had uh, he had it created for the parishes hmm. and then duplicated it for the parishes. An icon again. It's a style, a particular style of, of artwork, and found. The, the, the great ones, in many ways, are found mostly in the Eastern religious traditions. Sure. Um, but you do have, you know, statues, paintings. It can, be, uh, it can be a cross. It can be something you can hold in your hand. Or it can be a great, you know, piece of art or, or you know, a building. Is that the idea being is that these objects, 
these objects, these ex places or experiences can help to challenge, channel, not challenge, but help to channel our prayer and to ultimately have us focus on God. You know, it's, it's when, when at times we are accused of, you know, worshiping Mary or uh, praying and worshiping a statue or an idol, is that I would say there is a serious understanding of what our tradition really is about when it comes to those kinds of things. When you think about the fact of, of you know, the, when the church broke apart, you know, much of the intelligentsia, you know, you know, went with the, with the Eastern, you know, with the, you know, Protestant traditions and such, is that what was left was really the folks. And these folks had to be given something to help them focus and to help them pray. They couldn't read a Bible, they couldn't go to a Bible because they couldn't read a Bible. They, they weren't going to go to the pilgrimage because they couldn't go anyplace. They had all they could do just to survive. So what do you do? You give them, in many ways, you give them simple items that can help them to focus. You look, when you think about the sign of the cross, the sign of the cross is a ritual that teaches us about the Trinity, that teaches about Jesus. You think about, you know, depictions of that. You think about uh, different you know, uh, statues of saints or, or even even the things such as, uh, you know, the relics and such, is that though we don't think too much about that today in, in our culture and such, these were terribly important pieces of, of, of a person's faith tradition that helped to connect them to God. And I think that's where we have to, re what we have to remember is that these depictions, these things helped people to stay connected to God. Was it always possible to get icons and or statues for your house? Or did that come about later? I would say that the more popular things came about later, I would say in the, you know, they were always available, but you didn't have as much, I would say, you didn't have things made as cheaply. Sure. Um, if you were going to get a picture of the Immaculate Heart of Mary or the Sacred Heart of Jesus or whatever, these things were going to cost you something, you know. And for the average folk, you were probably going to pay, you know, what could be considered a, a decent amount of money. Sure. Or this was going to be a gift that a group of people gave you for a wedding <laughs> um, because you couldn't necessarily afford it on your own. Is that... Now, sadly, <clears throat> in some ways, in our own day and age when things can be so cheaply made, you have a lot of junk out there. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it looks junk and it is junk and it ends up in the garbage usually someplace because nobody wants it. A good piece of, of religious art is something you hand on from generation to generation to generation. It doesn't end up usually, you know, in a dumpster. It, it, may, it may be placed, you know, in a, in a, maybe given to a parish, or it may be given to a, a church, a, a store that, you know, that specializes in these kinds of things where it would be able to be find a good home, mm -hmm. but you're not going to find it just thrown away in the garbage because it broke and had a crack or it just looks God awful. It, it, it looks like junk. Mm -hmm. And, and you're saying, wow, you know, and, and in some ways I find it, to me, it's just very sad when when you have so much junk out there. Um, 
Former uh, auxiliary bishop Skelba would oftentimes say to people, uh, I've heard them say this to engaged enrichment groups and, and, and other groups, uh, for uh, people coming into the church, you know, through the RCIA and such. He would encourage them, buy for your home a very nice piece of religious art. He said, don't get the junk out there. <laughs> Make it a very nice piece of art, something you can be proud of, and something that you can, you know, uh, display in your home. He said, it's important that we have these images, religious images, that remind us of our faith, remind us of what we profess, remind us of the demand of what discipleship means. He said, we need these reminders. And a good piece of religious art, not junk, you know, he said, we'll do that for you. And, and you will be glad that you did for years to come. Never forgotten that. But to be fair, junk's in the eye of the beholder. So maybe someone really relates to something that's not super expensive. Yes and no. It's the difference, you know, if you get a decent, you know, cross and then you get something that's just stamped out of plastic that has the plastic flanges, you know, still. Yes and no. <laughs> I, you I'm know, just, yes and I'm no. I'm just saying. Yes and no. Art is... Not well, like even, everyone doesn't always think yes. the same thing is even though you say art has a has a meaning to it. If you are, I would believe that when you say art, knowing a little of your background, you are talking of something that is of quality, not just something that you know was thrown together in a, but a couple of pieces of plastic. That would be my sense. Now, probably if something was given as a gift by a three year old, yeah. Maybe you hang on to it for a while. Um, I, I suspect it may not last all that long. However, true. true. You know, but that has a different meaning to it. Yes, then. It, yes, it does. It goes beyond. However, yes and no. <laughs> I, I would, I would have to say yes and no. Um, um, so then, you know, if we're supposed to be getting nice art and keeping, I don't know, art help us statues, icons bring us closer to heaven, God, yeah. Jesus, whatever. Why do we put Mary in bathtubs in yards, and why do we bury a saint upside down to make our house sell? And I mean, it's a good, good question. I, you know, a very good question. You know, it's interesting how what oftentimes is referred to as bathtub Mary. Is, and I don't even know where that came from. I just well, know I've seen it, it in yards. It comes out of of the pieties of people that when. You know, if you have a bathtub, just sit there and such. That's one thing with a statue of Mary in it. That says one thing. But I have seen sometimes what is referred to as bathtub Marys. I have seen some incredible works of art where people have built like grottos around it. Mm -hmm. They've simply used that as a background. They've simply used that and they have built brick and all sorts of things. But a tub, I don't get it. Hey, it's a it. practical thing, you know. People used what they had to give honor to Mary, you know. And and this, you know, it had to start someplace where somebody had an idea and yeah. say, wow, that's a great idea. You know, but it was, here again, it's like anything. If it's out there and it's never been taken care of or whatever, it says something. Mm -hmm. But when you have a place where there are flowers and such... That white t 
hub simply becomes a background. It's, you don't even notice it necessarily unless you were really looking for what is that. And then there have the shells that, you know, look like bathtubs. You know, it's like they're trying to get that grotto effect, you know. Now. Poor man's grotto, bathtub. Maybe yeah, that's what maybe, it was. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. You know, when you think again, think about people using what they have available mm. to them. But my suspicion is, is that initially, and a lot of things can happen over the over the decades. Initially, it was a way to give honor to Mary, and by giving honor to her as the mother of God, giving honor to God. Where the idea of burying Joseph upside down for selling a house, don't know, <laughs> and why, don't know. Once uh, it's sold, do you dig it back up or do you leave it? You're supposed to dig it back up and put it in a place of honor in your home, your new home. That's the idea. Does it ever get there? Yeah, I would say probably not. <laughs> I wonder how many Josephs are, are buried, buried in upside down. You know, where something like that comes from, sometimes you, you, sometimes these things, Lindsay, can become more magical and really more pagan in orientation than anything else. They, it's... It I can suppose be, coincidentally, yeah, yeah. one time someone put Joseph could well upside be. down, and it just could snowballed well be. from there. You know, but that becomes more magical. Now, do I believe for a moment that God's going to worry about whether Joseph Joseph is upside down and sell your house? No, I don't. Um, it is something that happens. I think sometimes it's more of an aberration than anything, <laughs> but. Pieties are what they are, and sometimes it's hard to say where they come from. I suppose if someone puts Joseph's upside down in their yard, Joseph knows they're serious and can intercess to... They put me upside down, they're serious. Could be. Let's go. I highly doubt it. Could be. Could be. Come like on. I said, sometimes these things, these things get to be um, more magical and more pagan than they are really Christian. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason. Again, who knows? Who knows? Sure. Don't know. I don't. That's one I do not know uh, where it comes from. Do I know people who have done it? Absolutely. Um, You've never done it? I have never done it. I would not suggest it. Personally, I would not suggest it. Because that, that to me, borders more on the pagan and the magical. Um, you know, would I suggest that somebody has a small statue of Joseph and prays in order that they find a home in a sense? And there is the long history of Joseph in, in protecting his family and finding a home when they went to Egypt and then, you know, taking them from harm's way and bringing them back. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's a whole tradition there. But the putting them up upside down and turning them away, yeah, that borders on more to me. This is, to me, it borders more on the magical and the pagan, and I would not suggest that. I would suggest, you know, maybe having a statue and, and offering some prayers. Wouldn't suggest putting them upside down. And So, like, I know in the, we sell St. Peregrine statues, little tiny ones, who's patron saint of cancer patients. Cancer patients, yes. And so that would be okay? Like, you give someone a St. Peregrine yes. statue and say, here. For several reasons. One is that... The history is there that he suffered from cancer and through prayer, uh, healing took place, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, it's, you know, giving someone a small statue and such says a couple things. One, 
is that you are keeping this person in prayer. You are holding them up to God that if it is God's will, uh, ultimately in, in, in the divine mind of God, if it is God's will, that healing can take place. If it is not God's will, that this person can accept and, and, and come to a peaceful death, you know, as, mm -hmm. as the cancer progresses. So it says you're praying for them. It says that there are examples in, in our faith tradition where healing has taken place. Ultimately, what we are speaking of, though, no matter what <clears throat> saint it might be or for whatever mm -hmm. cause, is that we are placing our trust in God. That we believe that this saint, again, as the community communion of saints, is, is uh, you know, pray, praising before God, that somehow those prayers are heard and those prayers will be responded to how God chooses to respond them. See, we oftentimes get into the, oh God, do this for me. But <laughs> what we don't put is the ending prayer of that is, and if that is not your will, then help me to accept what your will is. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of, and it comes from the prayer, really. You know, Jesus in the garden, Father, take this cup from me. He didn't like being in pain. I mean, that would have been pretty sick if he did. Uh, oh boy, oh boy, hurt me some more, God, you know, type of thing. As much as take this cup from me, but if it is your will that this is what I must accept, then I accept it. Mm -hmm. the, and, and we forget the ending part. <laughs> we like the first part, but we forget the ending part of being able to say, Lord, take this terrible disease from me. But if that is not the case, help me to accept what I need to accept. Give me courage and faith to be at peace and to rest and die in your hands. Mm -hmm. That's the part we have to be willing to add to it. And for any saint, that's the part that they would have added to that also. Because when we think of the saints and such, that many of them we talk about, you know, they died peacefully, you know, um, they died, you know, pray, giving praise to God. They died, you know, not because they liked the cancer or whatever, but because they placed their hands ultimately in God's hands. Sure. That's the part we have to remember. So really we should make sure if we have statues or icons in our houses or we're looking at buying them, how we're going to use them. Yes, I, I really think so. I think that that's a good point that you make there, Lindsay, that, you know, if we have these things in our home, you know, not just to shove them in a box, uh, or if we have them up or whatever, is that, you know, to display them as, as truly that they represent, you know, something about our spirituality. They represent, uh, you know, something about the people that have been part of our lives. I know that, you know, I have a cross in, in my home uh, that, that hung in my parents' bedroom for as long as I can remember, uh, that it, it speaks to me of, you know, my mom and dad and, and, and the faith tradition that they came out of. I have different things that <clears throat> have been given to me, passed down, uh, you know, a, particularly a rosary that my that was my dad's. Um, and, and a couple of things that, that mom had that these, these speak not only of them, of course they do, but even more, they speak of their faith, they speak of God, they speak of God's goodness, they speak of the blessings of who my parents were and, and you know, in my life. That um, speaks of the challenge that I have to to take their example and, and to somehow live that, you know, and by doing so, giving honor and glory to God. Uh, not because somehow they're going to magically come down and 
you know, zap me and change my life. Um, <laughs> would they do that? Great, fine, you know, I'm open to that too. Eh, probably not. <laughs> probably not. Okay, anything else to add on statues or icons? No, no, I just think that at times it's it's not magic. There's no magic to this. And I guess I just want to emphasize that. This is not about magic, it's about power and control. This is about faith. This is about faith. It makes a difference. All right. Well, thank you for all that information. We hope you enjoyed that, and we will see you next time.